Dialogic Disciple is an invitation to explore discipleship in dialogue with the world as disciples of the word. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Northside Church Wednesday night Bible study. We uh, our, our topic is going to be uh, reading the Bible amid the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and I am James Johnson. You guys, I think most of you probably know who I am. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you. Come talk to me after class if you still want to be friends with me after class. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have here a uh, roll sheet. This is a new technology called a, a notepad. And this is called an ink pen. That's what my generation grew up with. Uh, I'm going to pass this around. If you don't mind, please put your name down here. And if I don't have your email address, put that down for me, too. Please make sure you get on that. I'm going to be sending out supplemental materials for this class as we go through. So you're going to want to be on that list so that you can grab those materials as we go through. Uh, this class is a little different than any of the classes that I've ever taught before in that it is dealing with something that is happening uh, right now in our lives together as a church. And uh, obviously, I'm talking about the conflict that's happening in Israel right now. Um, I assume that's why you guys are all here tonight, because you have questions and you have thoughts and you have um, a, a desire to understand what's happening and, and a desire to know what it is that we are supposed to, how we're supposed to respond as Christians. Um, I want to be up front real, real quick about what the nature of this class is going to be. This is a Bible study, so uh, bring your Bibles with you, uh, as you always should do when you come to church. Uh, this is a Bible study. We are not going to get into the weeds of the current conflict that's happening right now, at least not until later in the class. What I want to do in this class is, as a church, as Christians, dive into the scriptures and see if we can build a foundation for a Christian response to what's happening in the Middle East right now. It's something that we sh should have already been doing. It's something that we're always kind of thinking about. Um, but because of the crisis that is, that is unfolding right now, um, it is something that's on everybody's mind. And so it's something that I wanted to, to dive into um, while we're kind of all focused on this event. Um, so we are, again, if you came here thinking that you were going to walk away with a, a resolution and a solution to the issue, Yikes. Uh, no, that's not going to happen. If you came here because you're fired up and you want to express your opinion on the matter, uh, also probably not going to happen. Um, we are going to be friendly and kind to one another. I imagine that in a room this big with this many people, there's a bevy, a spectrum of opinions and thoughts on what's happening right now. Our goal in this class is to read the Bible and find out how the Bible has been misread with this issue and discover how the Bible might correctly help us to reflect and to discern through the Holy Spirit what our response as Christians should be. Tonight's class is going to be a little bit different than the rest of the classes will be. We're going to be dealing with particular issues that are involved with the conflict right now, uh, rolling into, uh, as, as they're reflected in Scripture. Tonight, we're going, to, we're going to do something a little bigger and a little broader than that as we kind of lay a foundation for everything that we're going to do coming forward. Before we get into any of that, however, I want to open us with a word of prayer. So please pray with me. Almighty God, first and foremost, we thank you for this space and this time that you have set apart and given to us that we may come together as your disciples. We pray, God, that your spirit would be poured out into this room, that you would open our hearts and minds, and God, that you would give us a heart to reflect on these difficult issues, these difficult crises, these difficult things that are happening in the world around us. God, we are your people. We are your disciples. We are your church. And we recognize you, Jesus, as our king and the ultimate authority in this world. We pray, God, that you would help us to live into that vision, that you would help us to hear your word. God, more than anything right now, we pray for peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, the peace that we know through you, God. We pray that that peace would reverberate throughout all of this world, and that you would use us as ambassadors of that peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 
<clears throat> I've kind of talked a little bit about this, but uh, does everybody have a handout? If you don't, there's, there should be handouts in the back. If we've run out of handouts, then there are way more people here than I thought we were going to have. Um, but here's some more right here. I'll put them back here. We got plenty, I think. Here you go. Look at you guys sharing resources. I like it. That bodes well for us. So a little bit of introductory. I've kind of already talked about this a little bit. But let me go ahead and reiterate some points. Why are we here? Why are we here? Um, obviously, we're here because of the events that are unfolding in Israel right now. Hamas's attack on Israel and Israel's response in Gaza. We're also here because of the larger Israeli-Palestinian conflict that's been going on for years and years and years. Our role here, our, our goal here, at least my goal here, is to discern what role the Bible plays in this conflict, as well as try to figure out how we might read it in the midst of this conflict and help us to move toward a Christian response. As disciples of Jesus Christ, I think that should always be our first kind of question. How should I respond to anything that's happening in my personal life or in the life of my church, the life of my city, the life of my nation, the life of my world? How do I respond as a disciple of Jesus Christ? That's the number one goal. That's the goal of this class. Whether we will achieve that goal, I have no idea. <laughs> That'll be all up to the Holy Spirit and, and, and how this thing unfolds. I have, I have firm confidence that we will receive what we need to receive um, from, this, from this exercise in this class. We will be meeting for four weeks. We'll meet this week. We'll meet next week. We will take Thanksgiving week off. And then we will meet for two more weeks in this room at 6.30 on Wednesday nights. Uh, tonight we are going to do a very broad kind of sweep of the story of the Bible as we lay a foundation for trying to make sense of, of how the Bible's played a role in this, in this conflict. Um, and then following weeks, we'll get into uh, the more minutia details of particular issues and particular ideas. Next week, for instance, we're going to dive into the idea of the promise, the land that's been promised, and what it means to be the chosen people of God. Um, but before we get into that, I want to give us more of a context and framework for what any of those things might mean by looking at the whole story of the Bible. Some of the issues that uh, we're going to be addressing or that are in need of discernment in this, ish, uh, in this conflict and in this series that we're going to be talking about are the land and the promise of God. You see this on your handout. Chosenness and election. What do those things even mean? What does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean to be elected by God? There will be throughout religious considerations that we'll, we'll be talking about, things such as uh, Jewish religion, Muslim religion, and of course, Christian religion. We'll be talking about what, what's the difference between an Israeli and an Israelite? They are not the same. Uh, and we'll be talking about what's the difference between an Israeli and a Palestinian? What's the difference between Israel and Palestine? Those kinds of things we'll be talking about as we, as we draw that conversation into Scripture. We're talking about the possibility of even having a dialogue on this topic at all. Uh, I, you guys have probably already been in some conversations about this with some of your friends and family, maybe some of your coworkers. Have all of those been very calm, very chill conversations? No, no, not at all. We're going to talk about why that is and, and what we can do about that. We're going to talk about the rise and expression of anti-Semitism both uh, in the, across the globe and here in the United States, and why, that, why that's happening, where that comes from, and how the Bible plays a role in that. Issues of dealing with the other. By that I mean somebody who is not you. Frank, I am the other to you. But also groups of people, right, being other from us. Uh, and then issues of exclusion and inclusion, uh, which Scripture is very ambiguous about. Uh, across the board. So we'll, we'll talk about more about that as we move forward in the class. Um, I hate, I'm very nervous to even do this, <clears throat> but does anybody have any questions <laughs> um, about anything that I've said so far before we get into the heart of what we're going to be doing tonight? Did I trick anybody in, 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 in uh, coming to this class? I tried to make it very clear what we were going to be doing, so I hope, I hope that you're ready for that. For those of you who just came in and those of you who are coming in, there's a handout passing around somewhere. We've got a couple up here if you need one. 
Uh, and there is an, an attendance notepad going around. Please make sure that, that gets, uh, you get your name on that. As I said before, I'm going to be sending out some supplementary materials to this class as we go through this, um, and you'll definitely want to get on board with that. So tonight what I want to do is tell the entire story of God's people as we see it outlined in the Bible. So you're going to get the entire story of the Bible tonight. You're going to get the big pieces of it. The pieces that relate to especially this conflict and how we're supposed to wrestle with it as Christians. Um, this is, I want to be very clear, uh, a class that is designed for disciples of Jesus Christ. That for it is going to be a Christian read of Scripture. Most of the story I'm about to tell you happens in the Hebrew Bible and is also related to the Jewish people, obviously. But there is a very different way in which Christians and Jewish folk read the Hebrew Bible. Um, and, and so I want to be very, very upfront and clear about that. Uh, I, I've put many different like, scripture references and bullet points on your handout here. I am not going to probably touch on all of these tonight, obviously. There's a lot of them here. Uh, but this is for your own uh, guide and for your own study as you, as you wrestle with this issue on your own time. But I want to start with the beginning. Right, it's a good place to start, is at the beginning. Genesis, the book of Genesis, you guys have read it before. We've all read chapter 1, the big creation story. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So, <laughs> well, he didn't do that in the beginning. That happened a little bit later on. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the story of God's people begins with God. And God creating the heavens and the earth. And the very first thing that we learn about humanity in, uh, in the story of creation is that God created all humanity. God created every single human being. Human beings are a product of God's good creation. God calls us good, and God creates us in God's image. That, that, very, simple, that very simple verse, which is in chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis, goes like this. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He didn't create any, any other people that are more in the image of God than any other people. All humanity is created in the image of God. And at the very end of chapter 1, he says all of humanity was very good. It was a very good creation and a good thing that God did. As you continue on the story, now if that's how the story ended, we'd all be Good to go, right? If, but as you continue on the story, you'll find that this thing that we call sin creeps into creation, slithers into creation, and ends up corrupting God's good creation. And almost immediately starts causing division and strife and violence among humans. The first time that sin is mentioned in the Bible is in chapter 4 of Genesis, when Cain and Abel are just hanging out as brothers, right? Where's your little brother at today? Where's your brother at? Your big brother. Yeah. Oh, he's in youth. Oh, good. Good. That's where he should be. That's where he should be. Um, so it, these two brothers who, who have a, a difference of opinion or God is, is treating one with more blessing and favor than the other. And Cain, the older brother, gets upset and he's really angry. And God comes to him. And in Genesis chapter four, verses six and seven, God says, dude, why are you angry? Like, just do what is right. And everything's going to be fine. But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to consume you, but you must overcome it. If Cain just listens to what God has to say there, again, maybe we're not in the situations that we're in today. But this is, this is where sin is first mentioned in the Bible. And it tells us something about sin that I think is very important not only for the conflict that we're seeing, the violence that we see across our world and across our nation, the violence that we see here in our own city, that sin is a force, an evil force that is trying to consume us. It is trying to divide us. It is trying to cause conflict within us. The Bible tells us about this evil force, this spiritual force, very soon, very quickly uh, in the story. We know how the story goes from there, right? Cain and Abel. The sin, the sin of the world multiplies and grows and grows and grows until you get to the point where God just wants to hit the reset button. And we have the flood. And God calls Noah and saves Noah and his family along with uh, the animals of creation. They float on that boat for a while. You know the story, right? One of the most dark stories, dark, darkest stories in all of Scripture. Um, <laughs> I remember when I was in Sunday school, some of you guys know this, but when I was in Sunday school, I was probably about your age, 
I remember asking my uh, Sunday school teacher, who was this really old woman who was volunteering to teach class. She was probably like 35. Uh, but she, she was volunteering to teach class. And, and I asked her, well, what did the lions and tigers and the bears eat on the ark? Because, I mean, they're not going to eat like hay and wheat and stuff like that. What are they eating? Are they eating the other animals? I was really interested about this. And she looked me dead in the eye without any kind of irony and said, they ate the sinners of the, bo the, the bodies of the sinners that were floating in the water. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. That's not in the Bible, but that is an image that will stick with you your entire life. Man, that was like 35 years ago I heard that story. So anyway, God, God wipes the surf, uh, surface of the earth clean and, and with the flood and tries to start over with Noah and his family. But of course, almost immediately, Noah and his family fall back into sin. This sin that is crouching, that is hiding, that is hunting us gets Noah and his family. And the sin continues to multiply until we get to the Tower of Babel. And the people of the earth, the humans of the earth decide they want to be glorified like God. And so they start building this tower. God has to come down and knock it down like a, like a sandcastle, right? Just knocks it down and scatters the people of the earth. And then we come to the true starter of our story, the start of the, of the narrative that's kind of flowing through this conflict, the narrative that's flowing through our own faith, the narrative that flows through uh, not only uh, our faith, but Jewish faith, obviously, and even into the Muslim faith. This is a, a story that is celebrated and read by uh, many, many different people on this planet. It has been for many, many years. It's the story of Abraham. God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is at this point 75 years old and he's hanging out and God comes to him and says, I need you to pack up everything you own, pick, gather up all your family. I'm moving you away from where you live now and I'm taking you to another land, a land that will be yours and it will belong to you and it will belong to your descendants forever. I promise you this land and therefore we call it the promised land, right? The land of Canaan, what we know today as Israel or Palestine. This is what God says to uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and, I, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the very first thing that God promises Abraham. He goes on to promise him that he will have many descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. He goes on to promise him that the land of Canaan will be his and his descendants forever. And he promises him that he's going to have a son, right? That, that many descendants starts with one descendant. And, and Abraham and Sarah, who are getting older and older and older, start to get a little impatient <laughs> with this story, right? Frank, if God came to you and said you were going to have a baby, would you get impatient? Or would you be like, no, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? I'm good. <laughs> right, yeah. That's good. That's good. So I don't know why I'm picking on you, Frank. I just see you right there. But uh, anyway, so, so they, Sarah comes up with this plan. It's like, hey, Abraham, why don't you, why don't you sleep with my maidservant, Hagar, this Egyptian maidservant that I have, Egyptian slave, really, that I have, uh, and maybe you guys can have a baby and then God can fulfill that promise through you. And I can have at least some some small part in that. And Abraham's like, wow, well, I don't know. OK, yeah, I'll do that. That's fine. Let's do it. Uh, and so Hagar and Abraham uh, sleep together. And of course, that's where we get uh, the character, the, the, the person of Ishmael. This is Abraham's first son, his firstborn son, uh, Ishmael, the, the son of Hagar. You'll notice something as you read through the book of Genesis, if you just want to like do have nothing to do on a Saturday afternoon, just want to read the book of Genesis, that firstborn sons get a bad rap in the book of Genesis. Ishmael, Cain, Ishmael, right? Uh, Esau, all of Joseph's older brothers. Like all, the whole story, it seems to be like the second son, the weaker son is the one that gets chosen, gets picked, that God uses, right? Ishmael is born, he lives for a little bit, and then God does come through on his promise, and Sarah does have a child at the age of 90 years old. She has a child, which they name Isaac, which means he laughs, right? Uh, and, and Isaac becomes the child of the promise, and Sarah pushes Hagar and Ishmael out of the family, tells them they have to leave. 
Now, you guys probably know this, but Ishmael becomes the father of, according to our scriptures, according to the Bible and, and some historical stuff, Ishmael is the, is the father of the Arab nation and also the father of the Muslims, Muslim Islam religion, uh, eventually. Isaac is the father or the, becomes the son of the Jewish, the representative of the Jewish side of that Abraham tree. And, is, and uh, Ishmael becomes the, the representative of the Arab or Muslim side of that family tree. But God blesses Ishmael, right? There is a blessing where God comes to Hagar in the wilderness after he, they have been evicted and thrown out from the family of Abraham. God sees Hagar and blesses Ishmael and says he too will become a great nation because that's the promise I made to Abraham. It has nothing to do with Ishmael or really Hagar. It has everything to do with the fact that God made a promise, and when God makes a promise, God keeps his promise. It's going to be a very important theme to hold on to as we walk through the story here and as we think about what this means for us. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob is a guy who is just like the most conniving, like dastardly little dude in the entirety of Scripture. I mean, he is like, he is a conniving little guy. He is so bold one day that he decides to wrestle God. God comes down to see him, and he wants to wrestle God, and he wrestles with God. Imagine wrestling with God, Brenda. Could you do that? And he's doing pretty good. In fact, he's almost got God down in, like in, a, in a hold until God kind of has to cheat and like touch his hip a little bit, knock his hip out of joint or whatever. And, and, and then Jacob walks away from this fight, but he walks away with a limp. And his name gets changed from Jacob to Israel, which means wrestles with God. And that's, that's, the, that's where the name Israel comes from. Jacob has 12 children who are become the, the patriarchs of the, or the, the representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel uh, eventually through a couple different things that happened. But the 12 sons, Joseph is, is his second to last born child. Joseph is his favorite. And he makes him this coat of many, many colors. You've seen Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. Same thing, right? He makes him this coat of many colors because he loves Joseph so much. And because he loves Joseph so much, his brothers get really jealous. You know, I remember being jealous of my little brothers when my mom would pay more attention to them than to me. I never sold my brothers into slavery. I didn't know that was an option. But that's exactly what happens, right? The people, the people, uh, the, the, the brothers of Joseph sell him. They throw him in a pit. And then they sell him to some traders who sell him into slavery down in Egypt. And Joseph has some special gifts through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the presence of God in his life. He can, he can interpret dreams. And he ends up interpreting his dreams up, up all the way until he gets to Pharaoh, and he interprets some of Pharaoh's dreams, and he ends up becoming like the vice president of, of Egypt. He comes into a, into a position of great power in Egypt. And because he can also interpret dreams and see the future a little bit, he knows there's a famine coming, and so he has Egypt prepare for this famine that's coming. The famine comes, and the people who live in Canaan... That is, Joseph's family, Jacob and his brothers, and all of their family, they need food. So they go down to Egypt to try to find some food. They heard that there's some food down in Egypt. And lo and behold, when they get down there, who do they bump into? Oh, hey, little bro. <laughs> can, I, can I get some food? <laughs> kind of situation, right? Um, Joseph, Joseph forgives his family, ultimately forgives his brothers, and has his entire family move down into Egypt. At this point, we're talking about probably 75 people. 75 to 100 people moved down as part of what are going to become the people of Israel. And it's so nice down in Egypt. Like, there's so much food, and, J and Joseph's got so much power. I mean, we're living like a, like a nice lifestyle down here. They decide to just chill and stay. They never go back to the promised land. Just in case you don't know, like, this was not part of God's plan. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is Joseph and Jacob kind of playing willy-nilly with God's plan. They leave the promised land, the land that was promised to them, and took, because they're more comfortable down in Egypt, they go down to Egypt, and they start to multiply, you know, as people do. <laughs> and eventually they get so vast, so big, that they become a threat to the Egyptians, almost outnumbering the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh comes up with a great plan. He's like, you know what we should do? We should put these people to work uh, and not pay them, right? And so he enslaves them to start building bricks for the, Egyptian, uh, for the Egyptian government, for the Egyptian people. Now, some people will tell you, or you may have heard, that they, the Israelites built the pyramids. I, I'm sorry to burst that bubble, but the pyramids were around for a thousand years before the Israelites showed up down there. So they had already been around for quite some time. But they did build bricks for other things that were constructed by the Pharaoh. 
We don't know exactly how long the Israelites were in slavery, but we know a 400-year period passes between Joseph dying and Moses showing up. So anywhere between 300, 400 years, they're, they're in slavery for a long time. And eventually they start to cry out to God. What have you done? Where are you? Why have you done this to us? What is going on? Why have, we're supposed to be your chosen people of God. And here we are making bricks for the Egyptians. What is that all about? Right? Where are you? God, why have you abandoned us? And God's like, what are you doing in Egypt? Man, I gave you the promised land. Why'd you even go down there? Right? No, God says, God answers their call and eventually calls this young kid up and rising star named Moses. Moses. The book of Acts calls him no ordinary child. He is somebody that is going to be incredibly important. In fact, the most important figure in the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. Moses is given, uh, given a special gift by God. God calls him and tells him, hey, let me tell you my name. Up until that point, God had never revealed his name to the people. And for the first time, God reveals God's name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, around verse 14. I think it's verse 14. He says, tell the people of Israel that I am is sending you to save them. And so God reveals his name in the burning bush, right? You guys know, remember the burning bush story, right? And so God reveals his name and his name is I am or I am who I am. Some translations say I will be who I will be. Or one of my favorite translations is I will cause what I will cause. All of those are good translations of that particular name, which we pronounce Yahweh. It's the name of God, the one you're not supposed to be taking in vain. <laughs> right? Moses goes, and you know the story. If you've seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, one of the best movies ever made. If, you, if you've seen that movie, you know. If you've read Exodus, you know, right? Moses goes and, 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 and the ten plagues are performed uh, through, through God and eventually, eventually Pharaoh allows the people of Israel to leave. He says, just get out of here, right? This is, happens after the, the tenth plague, which is the angel of death that goes over and kills all of the firstborn in Egypt. All of the firstborn in Egypt. Not just the humans, but the livestock and animals as well. The Israelites are spared from this angel of death because Moses tells them, God tells Moses and Moses tells them that if you take a lamb, you slaughter the lamb, you put the blood of the lamb on the doorframe, the angel of death will pass over your house and you will be spared. For those who didn't do it, they weren't spared. This is where the term Passover comes from. And this is the season of uh, the, the festival of Passover that's so important in the Jewish calendar. And also important to us as it's connected to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. These two stories are very, uh, very connected to one another. In fact, Jesus is called the Passover lamb. He is the lamb whose blood helps death to pass over us, right? That he, he conquers death. He conquers sin and death. He performs that uh, Passover lamb role for us. Uh, the Israelites leave the land of, of, of Egypt and on their way out, they, they jack a bunch of stuff. They steal a bunch of stuff. They take a bunch of gold. They take a bunch of stuff that really doesn't belong to them. And they're like, yeah, we're going to go. We're free. Right? And they're running, they're running away. Eventually, Pharaoh comes to his senses like, you know what? Free labor. I mean, we're just let it go out the door. Also, they stole all of our stuff. Let's go get them. Right? And so they start to chase down the Israelites. And God is leading the Israelites away from the land of Egypt, the, the, the Egyptians are coming after them, and they run into a big sea. They call it the Red Sea, right? And you've seen that moment where Charlton Heston gets up there with the staff, and the waters part just like this, right? It's a pretty cool moment. It's like 1953 that movie came out. It's still pretty good graphics if you've seen it. So Moses parts the Red God parts the Red Sea through Moses, and the Israelites cross over into the wilderness. And then the sea comes crashing down as the Egyptians try to cross over, and they're, they're drowned. I, I heard a joke one time. I don't really have time to tell jokes, but I'm going to tell this one joke. <laughs> I heard a joke one time uh, where a, a, histor a history scholar and a biblical scholar were having a debate about this Red Sea crossing. And the historical guy says to the Bible guy, hey, you know, they, they just found out by archaeological studies that the water... Uh, at the Red Sea was probably only about two feet deep. So that whole crossing the Red Sea thing, pff, not really that impressive, right? And the biblical scholar's like, wow, God truly is powerful. And the history guy's like, what are you talking about? 
It's two feet of water. I could walk across two feet of water. And he says, yeah, but to drown an entire Egyptian army in two feet of water? That's pretty amazing, right? So the people of Israel leave slavery, are baptized by the waters of the Red Sea, and come out on the other side a free people, and for the first time are really considered to be a people, the Israelite people. They have been born again in a way that this metaphor of enslaved, baptized by waters, freedom and identity on the other side is something that Paul's going to pick up with and run with in the book of Romans. This is, the, this is the root metaphor of the entire Bible right here, this event. This is the biggest event that happens in the Old Testament, the Exodus. Second biggest event that happens in the entire Bible next to, the, obviously, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's a big event. The people of Israel get out there, and of course, they're happy to be out there. They're free. They don't have to worry about slavery anymore. You guys know what happens. They start to grumble and they start to complain. And finally, Moses is just like fed up with them, right? God provides them with manna. God provides them with quail. God provides them with sustenance. And eventually, after a little, after a little time, they get to this big mountain called Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, sometimes it's, it's called. And Moses goes to the top of the mountain and he's up there a long time and God gives him the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments, the big Ten Commandments. One of the things that I just realized when I was rereading this story not too long ago, Exodus chapter 20 is where you'll find this, is that when the Ten Commandments are first proclaimed, when they're first given, they're given to the entire people of Israel. The entire people of Israel hear God's voice declare the Ten Commandments. I, for some reason, I had, I had lost that. I thought it was just Moses getting these things on the tablets, right? And when, and when the people of Israel hear this voice of God, they go to Moses and say, hey, that was awesome. Please don't ever let that happen again, right? <laughs> we don't want to hear the voice of God. We can't be in the presence of God. And so they force Moses to go up to the top of the mountain. That's why he goes up there by himself. As he comes back down, you know, he has the glory of God shining on his face. They make him wear a veil. Um, and the people of Israel receive this law this instruction. There's 10 commandments and then 603 other commandments, which really can be understood as just interpretation of the first 10 commandments. Really, the first 10 commandments are the law. That is really what God intended. And these commandments are given to the people of Israel as a way to shape them and, and, and form them into the people that God wants them to be, that God has chosen them to be, that God has called them to be, because God has a purpose for this people. God has not chosen them simply because, you know, let's just pick them out of a hat and then these are my special people and nobody else matters. Remember that God created all humans. God created all humans good and God created all humans in the image of God. And that the promise that was given to Abraham was a promise to bless all peoples, right? So whatever God is doing in this choosing moment, in this shaping moment for Israel, has to be directed toward fulfilling that promise because God doesn't abandon his promises, right? We know that. We know that. And so the people of Israel receive this law and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience. For 40 years, a whole generation of people wander around and <clears throat> they're not allowed to enter into the promised land. It's going to be the next generation that gets to do that. It's not going to be James Kirk. It's going to be Captain Picard, right? Star Trek joke, anybody? No? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll stick to the Bible. Uh, <laughs> But right before, right before the Israelites go into the promised land, after wandering around for 40 years, Moses gathers them together and says, hey, everybody, come listen to me. I've got a story to tell. And so everyone comes around. Moses is not allowed to go into the promised land. So they're like, let's go listen to the old man. Let's see what he's got to say. And as Moses, is, he gets up there and he says, hey, I just want to go ahead and go through the entire law one more time before you go into the promised land. They're like, oh, man. We thought you were going to do something cool, like a magic trick or something. And so they get there, and, Moses, and the book of Deuteronomy is Moses just walking back through the entire law. You get the Ten Commandments all over again. You get the Shema, which is the famous verse that Jesus said is the most and greatest commandment in the Bible. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Right? These commandments I give you uh, today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols to your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, your life should be saturated with the commandments of God. Right? That's the only way you're going to survive. 
is if you saturate your life with these things. And when your kids come to you later on, as they're going to, and they're like, hey, dad, why do we have to do this? This is so tedious and hard. Like, I, why are we following this law? You tell them, you tell them, because God rescued us out of slavery. God rescued us out of slavery. God redeemed us. And God is our redeemer. God is our protector. And that's why we do it, because God gave us these commandments. The entire book of Deuteronomy is fantastic. If, you had to pick, if I had to pick one book out of the Old Testament to keep, it would be the book of Deuteronomy. It is, it is fantastic. You get the story in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where when the Israelites are like, well, you must have picked us because we're so awesome. And he says in, in chapter 7, verse 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. You were the weak ones. You were the runt of the litter. That's why God chose you. You were the least of these. God chose you because of that. He goes on to say toward the end, something very important that a lot of people skip over because it's Deuteronomy, and I, I, don't, I don't blame you, but you, 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 a lot of people skip over, but as, as you're getting into the end of Deuteronomy, Moses basically sets two choices before the people as they're going into the promised land. You can choose life or you can choose death. It's very simple. If you choose life, then you will follow these commandments and you will thrive in the land that I'm going to give you. You will be a great people. And my promise to Abraham will be fulfilled in you. But he says very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you do not, if you decide to abandon me, if you forget about me, or if you don't follow my commandments, I'm going to kick you out. I will evict you from the land. So the promise that was given to Abraham for these people of Israel, as they're walking into the promised land for the first time as, as this new people, has a condition attached to it. You have to be in relationship with me. That's the way the promise works. That's the way this covenant works. It, Moses reminds them right as they're walking through and crossing the Jordan River, much like they crossed the Red Sea many years before that. And then the story of Joshua. Joshua just... <coughs> Uh, the power of God before him, Joshua, they, they conquest, they, they conquer the Holy Land, the, the promised land, the land of Canaan, it's called at that time. And you, you, these are where you get the stories of Jericho, right? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. You guys know that song? Jericho, Jericho. Right? You get that story, blowing the horns, walls fall down, it's great. If you've, ever, if you've never seen VeggieTales, I would start with the Joshua uh, on the, and the Great Wall episode of VeggieTales. It's really funny. Um, but this is a fantastic story of, of just God going before and driving out the evil people, the people who have, who have uh, ignored God's call, people who don't know God, people who don't want to know God, people who are worshiping other gods. It says very clearly in the, in the scripture there that, that God is, is punishing them by driving them out, and he's giving the land to the people of Israel. And so Joshua rolls in. Funny story, funny connection. Joshua is the actual name of Jesus. Sometimes we, we forget uh, that, John, that God, Jesus is a Latinized version of the word of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is better translated as Joshua. So, Yeshua. Yeah, there you go. Yeshua. Yeshua. Am I saying that right? Yeshua. Yeshua. Thank you. Thank you. So, so Mary didn't call Jesus Jesus, right? Probably called him Josh, right? Or a little Yeshi or, you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever little nickname he had or, you know, whatever it might have been. But... That name, God of salvation, salvation, that is the name that is given to Jesus. Jesus is actually the second Joshua, and this Joshua that's in, in the book of Joshua, this conquest king warrior guy that comes in and, conquest, and, and takes over the land of Canaan is, is kind of the model of what they're looking for when a Messiah shows up. It becomes one of the first models for what is a Messiah going to look like, right? It's going to look like this guy Joshua. In Joshua 24, the same covenant that Moses uh, spoke uh, to the people of Israel and the same covenant that was given at the Mount Sinai is renewed with the people of Israel. Uh, it comes with the same kind of stipulations as before. Joshua says, as for me and my family, I will serve the Lord. Right? You guys know that story. And then we enter into a time of uh, government called the Judges. The story of the Judges. If you want to read just like a horror story, <laughs> go read the book of Judges. I don't know if you guys remember for Advent, just a couple years ago, we tried to do the book of Judges. I don't know how we, if we pulled that off or not. Uh, 
there are some really, uh, really entertaining tales. Uh, this, Judges is the one you skip over in Sunday school for little kids, right? You don't read any of these stories. Um, but it's basically, it, it basically tells the story of the people of Israel. It says that there was no king in the land, and everybody just did what they wanted to do. Everyone did what they thought was right. It says that refrain over and over and over in Joshua. And they start off okay, but there's this kind of spiraling that happens in the people of Israel. As they, as they take the land, they settle in the land, they divide the land up amongst the tribes, and they spiral, spiral into more and more sin, more and more wickedness, until you get to the last story in the book of Judges, one of the most grotesque stories in all of Scripture. I'm not going to talk about it here because we have a kid present. But, but uh, if you want to read it, it's at the end of the book of Judges. Oddly enough, uh, however, it's in the book of Judges, or it's during the time of the book of Judges, that we also get the story of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is a very fascinating character in the Bible. One of my favorite books in all of Scripture. Um, Ruth is living in this time, toward the end of this time, She's going to be one of the uh, ancestors, one of the, quick, uh, one of the uh, very close ancestors of King David. She's a Moabite, which is one of the dreaded enemies of the people of Israel during the time of Judges. Moabites are, 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 are by the law, by Deuteronomy chapter 23, if you go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 23, Moabites are not allowed to be part of the people of God. They are forbidden. They are cast out. They cannot be part of the worship. Of, of Yahweh in the people of God. And yet we get the story of Ruth the Moabite, who is by this crazy story of Boaz and all the stuff that happens, is welcomed into the community of Israel. It's a little peek ahead to what God really has in store, right? It's not just about one people. It's about all people, right? This is a promise that God made to Abraham on behalf of all people, because God created all people, and all people are made in the image of God, right? I'm going to keep saying that over and over. That's something that we need to hear even today. Eventually, you get to the place where Israel wants to have a king. They demand a king. Everybody else around has a king, right? We're looking over here. They have a king. That nation has a king. That nation has a king. I want a king. We want a king, right? And so they go to Samuel, who is the last judge, the last kind of guy in leadership in that, in that judgery kind of role. And they say, hey, give us a king. And Samuel's like, guys, you have a king. God is your king. And they're like, nah, I mean, we know that, but like, give us a real king. Like, we want a king. We want somebody who's going to rule over us and give us order because this is just chaos right now. And God says, give him a king. And so Saul goes out and finds the most kingly looking dude you, you can find, like the Don Draper of the, of the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> right? He's just like, he's suave. He looks good. He's tall. Uh, you know, he's, he's attractive. Uh, and, and God and Saul anoints, or Samuel anoints Saul, this guy Saul, as king of uh, Israel, and he turns out to be terrible. <laughs> he is just terrible. And it's not long before God decides to anoint somebody else. And he anoints this little shepherd boy uh, who likes to write songs and play, you know, musical instruments, a uh, little kid named David, a little guy named David, right? And you guys know the story. David, a uh, very young guy, he becomes part of Saul's entourage, part of Saul's uh, part of Saul's military. Uh, he defeats Goliath, you know, when nobody else wants to fight Goliath. This little David out there with the slingshot that not, takes him down. Uh, and then eventually David becomes so successful at this job in, in, as a general, as a, as a leader in Saul's military that Saul becomes incredibly jealous of David and wants to kill him, right? And there's a little back and forth that goes on there. Eventually Saul himself dies uh, in battle as long, along with his son Jonathan. And David becomes king. And everything's okay because David is, it says, a man after God's own heart. That's what it says. It's like David's the guy you're supposed to want to be like, right? But if you go back and actually read the story of David, it turns out he's pretty terrible too. <laughs> Not really the greatest guy ever. Uh, whatever it means to be a man after God's own heart, it's, it's not quite clear in, 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 in the entirety of, story, of David's story. But David is the guy who conquers Mount Zion and the city of Salem and founds the city and makes the city of Jerusalem the capital of Israel. And that's where Jerusalem comes into play. Um, David is not allowed, however, to build a temple to God. In fact, when he goes to God and says, hey, all right, look what I did. I've, I've, I'm the king of, of your people. I've got you a city, a city, a, you know, a capital city. Let's build you a temple, God. God's like, actually, I kind of like living in this tent you guys built for me. It literally says, I don't really need a place. I'm moving around. I'm moving around with my people. I'm fine with that. You're not going to be the one who builds me a temple. It's going to be your son. 
And so when Solomon shows up, Solomon who is, by the way, considered to be and, and receives the, the, the most wisdom that anyone's ever had in the history of the world is what it says in, in, the, in the Bible. Solomon, the wisest man who's ever lived because God says, hey, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give you anything. And Solomon says, well, just give me wisdom so I can discern stuff. And God's like, oh, I like that answer a lot. You're going to be the wisest guy. Also, here's some gold and here's some other stuff, right? You're going to be cold. Solomon becomes the pinnacle of the Israelite civilization. When Solomon is king, is the best and highest, uh, greatest pl place that the, the nation of Israel in the Bible ever achieves. It's their largest land. They're, they're, they've got the most wealth. Solomon becomes the most oppressive king they've ever had takes people, little boys, uh, away from their families to put in his army. He takes people's horses to, so he can have chariots, right? And he builds this awesome temple to God by this, entire, by this instruction that's built on uh, this, based off of the tabernacle that was in the wilderness. He builds God this amazing temple, beautiful temple. And then he builds himself this huge palace right next to it. <laughs> Solomon, who is the wisest man who's ever lived, has 700 wives, and 300 concubines. Ponder, he's got a thousand women in his house, and he is the wisest man who's ever lived. <laughs> Unfortunately, every single one of those marriages represents probably some kind of political treaty he's made with some other people, some other group, who, and those wives have brought in their own gods, their own religions, and it begins to pollute, and it begins to pull people, uh, the people of Israel away from their covenant, their promise, their, their faithfulness, to God in the covenant that God has made with them. And so when, when Solomon dies, the kingdom splits in two. The kingdom splits in two. And you have in the north, 10 tribes of Israel become the nation of Israel. Their capital becomes Samaria. And in the south, you have the kingdom of Judah with two tribes, and their capital remains Jerusalem. You got the south and the north. Uh, totally against each other, do not like one another, and always at war with one another. In the north, things are terrible. They're removed from the temple. They're removed from the worship of God in the temple. They, they never have a good king. All of their kings are just terrible people doing terrible things all the time, worshiping other gods, sacrificing babies. It's crazy. They're doing crazy stuff up there. Eventually, the Assyrians come to power and roll through, roll through the northern kingdom and destroy them and exile them out of there. To this day, those people in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, some people call them the lost ten tribes of Israel because they were so, they're, they're, they were just gone. They were lost. Historical records kind of say that, that some of those Israelites obviously stayed in the land of Israel and intermarried with whoever else the Assyrians brought in to live there. And some of those people became or descended from Samaritans, or this, become the Samaritans that we see in the New Testament. Some historical records suggest that. In the south, things aren't too much better. There's a couple good kings. There's a couple guys who do what they're supposed to do. One guy is like doing renovations on the temple, and he finds like a Bible. Like the, he finds a book of Deuteronomy. He's like, oh, where's this been? Like we should probably be doing what's in this book, right? Like they hadn't had a Bible. Like, can you imagine if Northside did? We didn't have a Bible around here for like 100 years. And then one day you just found one like in a pew or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is interesting. We should probably be doing this. And so the, the, the people of Judah do a little bit better, but not too much better. And eventually when Babylon destroys the Assyrians, they, they roll in through to the southern kingdom of Judah. In 587 B.C., they sack Jerusalem, burn the city down, and burn down the temple of God. This is the second most important event that happens in the history of Israel in the, in the, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. It's the exile. The Babylonians gather up. All, all the people in Israel, or I'm sorry, all the people in Judah who have any kind of skill or talent, who have any kind of uh, ability to do or help anything, and they, they rip them from the land of Judah and they send them to the land of Babylon. This is when you get the stories of the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the stories of Daniel. Remember Daniel in the lion's den, those kind of stories? You get those stories. And in fact, most of the Old Testament as we have it today, most of the Hebrew Bibles we have it today, was written down and given final shape during this period of the exile. Uh, was written down and given final shape uh, during this period uh, and right after that. And, and the people of Judah are in exile for uh, at least one generation, 50 years or so. By 539 B.C., uh, when the Persians take over the Babylonians, the, the Persians and King Cyrus allow the, the, um, 
the, the Judites to go back to where they came from. Basically, like, we don't need you around here. Go back home. And when the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible, you get the stories of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and Ezra rebuilding the temple, or the temple being rebuilt and Ezra being established as, as uh, the guy who's going to restart the, the temple practices. And really, that's where the story of the Old Testament comes to a close, about 400 years or so before Jesus Christ is born. It's a story that begins all the way back in, with the creation, but really with Abraham and goes all the way through these kind of ups and downs and turns and twists that you see happening here. It, it sprinkled throughout here, when, when God allows Israel to have a king, when Saul comes into power, at the same time, God also kind of ratchets up his, his prophecy game, right? And that's when we start to see a lot more prophets show up. It's almost as though God knows the kings are going to be bad, so I'm going to send prophets. And so all the books of the prophets that we have start basically with, with the kingdom of David. That's where you get the stories. Remember Nathan the prophet who talks to David? You guys know that story. And then when the kingdom's split, you get the stories of Elijah and Elisha and all those prophets. Uh, when the exile happens... You get right before the exile, you get the prophet of Isaiah, and then you get Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and all those guys. What begins to happen, though, is as the people are returning back to the land, they're returning back to the land of Israel, uh, back to the, the land that God had promised them. They're starting to ask questions. They're starting to say, like, well, what is this all about? Like, what is this that has happened to us? Why is it that God took us from the land? Why is it that God is letting us return? Like, what, what is going on? And they start to, as they're writing these, these, these texts down, as they're, as they're shaping uh, what the, what, as the Holy Spirit kind of shapes through them what the Old Testament is going to become for us and what the Hebrew Bible is for the Jewish folk, they begin to see something in, in the literature that they hadn't quite seen before. This kind of figure begins to rise to the surface. This, this figure that Moses talked about all the way back in Deuteronomy when he says that God's going to raise up among, from among your own people a prophet who will speak just like you do, Moses, right? And they begin to see this kind of, there's going to be a guy who comes along that God's going to raise up who's going to be a king just like David was. And there's going to be a guy who comes along who's going to be a priest, you know, just like the high priest or just like the priest of Melchizedek. There's going to be, there's going to be this figure who's coming, this this anointed one, they called him, right? Because that's the king, that's the kingly role. And that anointed one terminology is what was, is, is translated as Messiah. They begin to see that there's this Messiah figure that God's been talking about the entire time, but we really weren't paying attention. The Israelites weren't really paying attention. And they begin to hope and expect and look forward to this Messiah character uh, in that 400-year period before Jesus shows up. One of the governing texts for that, for the people of Israel during that 400-year 400, uh, 400 period, while they're dealing with Alexander the Great and Pompey, the Roman, and all of those folks, while that's happening, Psalm 2 becomes for them this kind of messianic text. This is what they expect. This is what they're looking for. While they are still, while they're, they're back in the Promised Land, but they're under Persian rule, and then they're under Greek rule, and then they're under Roman rule. Like, what's going on? We're not our own people. This, this promise isn't being fulfilled. This becomes one of their big texts, Psalm 2. This is what it says. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will, break them from the, you will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise and be warned. You rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead you to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This becomes like the rallying cry 
And it's, there's a lot of language in that psalm that appears in the New Testament in reference to Jesus Christ, but there's a lot that doesn't. <laughs> and so when Jesus shows up, when the Messiah of God, when Israel doesn't quite look like what they were expecting, doesn't quite fulfill the prophecy in the way that they thought it was going to happen. You guys know the story of the New Testament. By the way, the New Testament is a Jewish book written about a Jewish Messiah. You guys know that, right? We all know that. There might be one Gentile writer, Luke, right? He, he wrote Luke in the book of Acts. But this entirety, the entirety of the New Testament and everything that is said about Jesus Christ is written by Jewish people who saw and understood Jesus to be the Messiah. Those of us who are Gentiles, which is probably the majority of us in this room, those of us who are Gentiles get invited into Israel's story in the New Testament. We get invited into the story that began with Abraham. We get invited into that story because of Israel's Messiah. It's not something special that we spun off and did ourselves. That's something that we as a church, by the way, and as, as Christians have forgotten, as we have kind of washed the Jewishness off of our faith, and we've washed the Jewishness off of our Messiah, off of Jesus Christ, we've made him into this kind of like the first Gentile, right? But Jesus was Jewish, and he was deeply, deeply Jewish, as was every single person uh, who believed in Jesus at that time. That's one of the other issues that we're going to be wrestling with and talking about as we go through this topic together. I am going to pause there, I think, tonight because we are right up on our time. What I want to say, though, and, and I, there's a lot here that's in the New Testament piece, this last, this point eight. What I wanted to get across, though, I think, is, is this point, that Jesus is, we believe as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, obviously, we believe that Jesus is that Messiah that they started looking for. And he fulfills the prophecies in a completely and radically different way than what they expected, than what was expected at the time. Jesus fulfills, there, there are passages of, of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible that, that become messianic in light of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Like Isaiah 53, right? We all know Isaiah 53. You guys, uh, we read this every like Lent. We read it every Holy Week. It's the passage that goes like this. You guys have heard it many times. It goes like this. Who has believed our message? And to whom, uh, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before us like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He took on our pain. He bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God. All of a sudden, in light of the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Jewish folk who believed in Jesus said, that's what they were talking about. That's what that meant. That's, oh, this is so much different than we expected. Oh, this means really probably some bad stuff for us, right? Those of you who are in my Acts study, you know, you, you, you'll know that a lot of the problems that, that, <laughs> that Paul had with, with Christians is that he was saying that the Messiah was killed. And the reason why Paul didn't like that is because it meant that, that Christians were going to be killed. The people who followed Jesus were going to have to be killed as well. Do you like somebody who says, I think we're going to pause there and just keeps going? That's why they won't let me preach here, by the way. That's why I'm not allowed to preach, because I'll be like, all right, everybody, let's close with a word. You know what, actually? <laughs> the whole point, the reason why I went through this whole story tonight, it's one of the reasons why I think Stephen goes through the whole story in Acts chapter 7. It's, it's because what I want to make clear to us is that this story is Israel's story. This is Israel's story that I talked about tonight. This is a story that we've been invited to through the Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's a story that is directed at the restoration of all people and all creation. This was God's plan from the very beginning, was to create good creation and to bless all peoples through Abraham. We get invited to that story through Jesus Christ, as does everybody else now. It's a story that has promise and covenant and land and all of these themes that are so important in this issue that we we're talking about, this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We need to get into those a little deeper and break in. I kind of just flew over them real quick, just kind of water hosed you guys with a bunch of story. 
But those are the those are the passages in the stories that we're going to come back to in the next three weeks as we get deeper into this and get deeper into those stories and see what what is what is actually going on there and what does it mean for us as people who have been grafted into the people of God, not people who are born into people of God, but people who are grafted through faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us? All right. All right, we're going to stop there for tonight, guys. Thank you so much for being here. This is fantastic. All right. Um, please join us next week, and we will, uh, like I said, we're going to talk more about the promise and the land and what it means to be chosen.